0: So.
1: dude you specifically told me to wait no it we're doesn't gonna sound right
0: no a hundred percent yeah, because we're gonna do that other thing next week but the day two cloud thing yeah we do both I was trying you... to I Ugh. am trying to help you you're no, the one you're, who not. Went you're trying, to, trying a... to submarine me to make yourself feel better why can't it be both <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to hurt you to help you Chris no I just figured the more places we can place that content, the more ways you can send that over to Gestalt IT and be like, look at what a great field day delegate I am. Look how awesome. Yeah. I mean,
1: my intention is to still write something about CXL. It'll just not be this time. It'll be next time. So then I can kind of do it in a reaction to what we discuss on day two.
0: Oh, I like that. Okay. Okay. That's acceptable. And we will move forward with your random topic, whatever it is, something about hybrid milk. Is that,
1: Something about Henry Milk. It's actually a deep dive into San Francisco politics.
0: Har- Harvey's lesser-known younger brother. Ah, oh, damn it!
1: <laughs> Let's take it from the top.
0: Nope, oh, nope. No. <laughs> it, it's kind of like the Eric Roberts of of uh, of the Julia Roberts family, right? You know? Yeah,
1: well-known brother of um, Eric Andre.
0: Exactly. Who's related to Andre Three Thousand? Both of whom are the children of Andre the Giant. <laughs> as as we all know, which is why they speak with a French accent. <laughs> That's Andre. You want a peanut <laughs> No more rhymes now, and I mean it, Chris. Yes, I've seen I too have seen the movie. Which I didn't get, I I honestly did not understand everything that Andre the Giant said in that movie until I turned on subtitles. Yeah,
1: I actually thought that was kind of part of what they were going for. That he was so uh, unintelligible.
0: Yeah. I don't think so. I think he was always sort of unintelligible. But in a wrestling context, it didn't really matter.
1: True. Big man tall, throw small man far. Yes.
0: That's really all we needed out of him. And, you know, if he needed to go off on Mike, it didn't really matter what he was saying. It was the passion with which he said it. Right. Not unlike the Iron Sheik in that way.
2: Mm, valid point.
0: Though,
1: in that case, you actually could understand what the words were. Less so when he put them together and thought that they formed a coherent thesis of some kind.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Not, Mm-hmm. Yeah, not really his forte. No. That's fine. I, I feel like that whole era is ripe for a sitcom or some sort of, I mean, it wasn't a sitcom to begin with. Well, I mean, but now like a, like a semi-historical retrospective of it. Oh, like a glow. Yes. I mean, glow was excellent and I'm still upset that they canceled it after three seasons because yeah, that was completely uncalled for. Mm, So good. I, but they could definitely do something similar with the with the men's wrestling of that era. Right. Anyway, hello alleged human and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned and I'm definitely not a robot. I am full of feelings, thoughts and silicon. I mean, I mean blood. Blood, yes. Delicious blood. That's that's delicious, right? Right, Chris?
1: I mean, it got a copper sense to it, which doesn't really
0: help mm, your case. Metals. Mmm, <laughs> Heavy metals. I like heavy metals. They're so tasty. I mean, they, they sound so good. I love heavy metal is what I'm saying. Rock and roll! When I said I'm a metalhead, I didn't mean that literally. You know, it's purely figurative.
1: Explain the
0: shine, Ned. <laughs> I can't help but shine. <laughs> uh... How you doing, buddy? Oh, well, you know, back from California. Do they still know how to party? Did they ever? That—that That is what I've been led to believe.
1: No, I think the accurate lyric, if it were to be rewritten um, in more of a documentary style, would be California knows how to charge $35 for a draft beer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, there is that, too. Good thing you weren't paying.
1: No, 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 no. That would be foolishness. <laughs> well. But um, no, the conference the conference was good. We'll talk more about it in the coming weeks, mm-hmm. as we've already alluded to whether it makes the the, the head of the uh, episode or not. Um, Tech Field Day. We talked a lot about CXL.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There was a whole consortium, so it was a whole day of CXL. Wow. And. Uh, You know, just a little teaser, but there's some promising things that are coming down the pipe. And actually,
0: at the CXL consortium, there was real hardware. Whoa. Yeah, I know. You know what's wild is there, like, version 3 of the spec is out now, and version 1 and 2 were written with no hardware. Correct. (laughs) It seems wrong. Um, (laughs) I mean, it kind of makes sense because you have to
1: have... People understanding what they're building towards, and if they're going to, be able to build it in a standardized way, then all of that theoretical stuff has to be put down on paper before they start making, I don't know, USB Mini. <laughs> oh man, that was
0: a bad idea.
1: But yeah, it was cool to actually see the hardware in person and watch the CXL controller software change memory configurations to say, this NUMA node has 16 gigabytes. No, wait, now it has 64.
0: Whoa, that's magic.
1: Yeah. Kind of cool. Also, I saw a server cooling company that has this product, which apparently is not new, but was fascinating slash new to me. Where the entire system is submerged in liquid. Oh, I've seen that before. It's
0: super cool. Yeah. But I'm. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, no, I've been to a couple trade expos. Uh, or whatever conferences where I forget the particular vendor, but they had the whole system like set up and running submerged in whatever this cooling liquid is. Right. It's not straight up water. It's something more oil based, if I remember correctly. Or if I remember
2: the
1: original
0: versions were mineral oil based. Yeah. Which is fun because it's super flammable. (laughs) That'll go great. Good thing we don't have a history of data centers going up in fire. No. And the fact that they called it Operation Hindenburg, I think, was just in poor taste. <laughs> it's fair.
1: But yeah, so those were cool. Um, and one thing else that I saw, because Tech Field Day is in San Jose, California, in and around the Silicon Valley area,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where huge, huge buildings all over the place with huge, huge company names on the top of the front of the buildings. Yes. And you know what else I saw? Huge, empty parking lots.
0: Hmm. Could be because most people aren't going into offices and really don't want to. That was an elegant segue. Thank you. Let's talk about some tech garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it, buddy. So totally
1: coincidentally, over the past three or four weeks, um, Microsoft released another report on hybrid work. And I say another report because I'm going to talk about about three different Microsoft surveys that have been done over the past 30 months. Okay. This one hits on a huge disconnect between management and workers when it comes to understanding remote work.
0: Oh, I I thought you were just going to stop at huge disconnect between management and workers. (laughs) Full stop. Well, that would be a real (laughs) short episode, wouldn't it? I guess it would. But okay, so this is specific to the disconnect about remote work and hybrid Yes, and
1: some of the ongoing frictions that it seems like management has kind of politely tolerated, but now are over. Okay. Which isn't healthy. But there we go. So before the pandemic, remote work was an exception. It's an estimated that only 5% of workers did work remotely. And by exception, I definitely mean exception, capital mm-hmm. E, probably capital exception. <laughs> I mean, think about the jobs you had back then. I remember working from, asking about working from home in the 90s and early 2000s and holy crap, I'm old. But it was a big kerfuffle. It was like I was asking to take the boss's daughter out to a movie.
2: Mm.
1: You know, like, no, what? Oh, no, that's not how this. So, excuse me. No, you will be at your desk, sir, or madam, because he wasn't really looking at me because leadership. You could have exceptions, right? You could have the odd Friday off. Like a famous one that we had at the university I used to work for was um, the Monday after Thanksgiving weekend. Mm hmm. So Thanksgiving, Thursday, national holiday, Friday, work from home day that following Monday. And this was considered a treat. Yes. Fast forward to what was that thing called where the whole world exploded and we were all scared to death? The pandemic? The pandemic. Oh, birth. No, (laughs) pandemic. Yes. Yes. We had that whole pandemic thing and the number of remote workers shot up exponentially to well over 60% and has basically remained there for the past two odd years. Mm -hmm. The change was immediate. I mean, it was a course of, I don't want to, I don't know, three weeks between March and April that all of a sudden everybody was not allowed to go to the office anymore. Yeah. And it caused workers themselves and the employers that pay them to question the validity of working in office in the first place. So this past month, Microsoft published a report that highlighted some more results about hybrid work. It's called their hybrid work survey, and it's actually a a full report that you can look at. We'll link it in the show notes. This one interviewed about 20,000 people across 11 different countries. And the biggest statistic that just jumps off the page is this, 85% of leaders say that the shift to hybrid work has made it challenging to have confidence that employees are being productive. Wow. Okay. So the article and a number of supporting ones call it performance paranoia, which I think really hits home. What they are saying is workers working from home. Are working and study after study shows that they are getting work done and we'll get into that in detail mm-hmm. the
0: hard part is managers don't believe them and i guess because their only metric for determining whether or not their workers were doing work is whether or not they could see their butts in seats correct well that was you know management by walking around right which just does not
1: work anymore. Or having your assistant walk around. Right, or the facts. (laughs) Simply put, the way that leaders are processing the work performed by remote workers has nothing to do with facts and everything to do with their feelings. (laughs) And if you're sitting there all smug saying, I shouldn't make that dumb, outdated joke, well, tough. I wrote this at like midnight. It was late and I was tired. But that crisis in confidence being writ large, 85% is astonishing. That should tell you all you need to know about the quote-unquote remote work problem. It's leadership's problem of interpretation, not the workforce's problem of delivering the work that was required.
0: I think it's really interesting if you read different newspapers that cater to different audiences the ones that tend to cater to the executive class are very um, sympathetic to the plight of leadership and the idea of bringing employees back to the office. Whereas papers that are more aimed at Joe and Jane Worker are like, isn't this great, this whole working from home thing? We should keep doing that, right? So, yeah, I think there's a certain echo chamber effect that's happening in terms of the media that's being consumed by these leaders. And they're also talking to each other rather than talking to the employees that are actually doing the work. Whoa, 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 whoa. Talk to the employees. Look, I don't even let them near my country club. You mean like their people? No. (laughs) Silly. So when
1: we talk about, the way that work is being interpreted has changed. It has changed in a dramatic fashion. We can look at previous work done by Microsoft themselves that bear some of this out. A 31,000 person study conducted at the beginning of this year shows a plurality of workers who are flat out against full-time in-office working arrangements. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever talked to anyone who has done any remote work over the past few years, you're gonna know what they said. People don't want to waste their time, especially in commute. Mm -hmm. People want to prioritize their personal well-being over prioritizing work. Mm -hmm. And they want to have a hand in deciding what their work location is going to be. They want to have choices.
0: Yeah, everyone I talk to says I was wasting, you know, an hour or two or an hour and a half on commuting, sometimes more, depending on the job that you had. I was wasting that time. That was time that I was not productive and also not enjoying myself.
2: <laughs> and right,
0: and was actively making my stress levels higher. While actively polluting the planet. <laughs> right. So, <laughs>
1: you know, one of, the, one of the fun ones that I read um, that I didn't cite in this particular episode, but basically it stated, people who have a bad commute come into work with a bad attitude, which means they do less effective work. Yep, that sounds about right. That's that's
0: one of those things where you kind of need the science to prove the obvious. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Uh, the other thing that, and maybe you're going to get to this, but uh, I'm going to jump ahead anyway. Uh, one of the other things that's brought been brought up to me multiple times is when I stay home, I can get deep work done, which is uninterrupted, focused work. When I'm in the office, I have people stopping by. I'm probably in an open office format, which means... There are constant interruptions and also just distractions of the person next to me who I can fully see that they're eating a roast beef sandwich and it's falling out of the sandwich and making a mess on the desk and they're not going to clean it up. And dear God, I don't have enough Clorox wipes for this. And Denise, I swear to God, if you microwave fish one more time, I'm going to set your car on fire. You burned popcorn last week. And listen, <laughs> we talked about you letting don't your have car on reheating fire. privileges right now. <laughs> So what I guess what I'm saying is, it's not that there's never a place for meeting in person and doing stuff like that. But for some of the most productive work that you'll do, it is going to happen when you're not in the office. Right. Um, in
1: support of that, if you remember, there are a lot of offices that were trying to build kind of breakout quiet rooms. So if you needed to do two hours of focus time... You go to the broom closet and lock yourself in so that Francine doesn't roll by leaning over your shoulder going, what you doing? Exactly. But maybe that's just me. Anyway, one thing that people often, and by people I mean leadership, often point to is, well, we don't think that our remote workforce is doing work. And that is... um, well, I don't want to use foul language because I know we have young young listeners. That is a poopy turd of an idea. <laughs>
0: a cow's a, poopy turd.
1: It is a stinky fart landed on top of a nonsense burrito. Ran out of words. Okay. Another report conducted early in the pandemic and at the absolute perfect time. Measured productivity based on 800 thousand responses over a two-year period to show the differences in outputs. And the year over year is really interesting because it was March through August 2019 versus March through August
2: 2020.
1: Mm. Remember that little pandemic thing that we were talking about?
0: That does sound familiar. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this was early on in the pandemic. Everybody was scared to death. And yet productivity was up an average of like 10% just across the board for that entire six month period. The Slack-based Future Forum did a follow-up of the similar type this month of 10,000 workers that showed clear advantages as high as 30% in productivity for hybrid versus full-time on-prem workforces. So the numbers are absolutely there. I am not going to drown you in data, even though I totally could. There is plenty of this stuff out there. All you have to do is Google the phrase remote worker productivity. So the problem here is not the work. The problem is trying to understand why leadership is just not listening. Mm -hmm. When it comes to forcing people back to the office, it seems like management has decided that they want it, but they can't articulate a convincing why, aside from the least convincing that I can ever think of, well, that's just what's always been done.
0: Yeah, usually not a good reason. And the reason they haven't been able to come up with a compelling reason for the employees is because the actual reasons would be would make employees unhappy. Correct.
1: I mean, one of them is we're lazy and don't want to think about new ways of working. Well, there is that, yes. So that's a sad.
0: <laughs> it's not great.
1: But another one, incredibly dumb and doesn't have anything to do with business productivity. Businesses want to protect their rent and property investments. (sighs) Yep. So leadership has rented or in some cases built or bought really expensive office spaces in very high rent neighborhoods. Now. In some cases, especially earlier, this was wise. I can think of quite a few businesses that use their glitzy address as a kind of justification of how serious they are in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Very serious. I mean, think about you know, if you had two different companies that were gonna do financial services for you. One of them was based in, I don't know, Puxatawney, and the other one was based in Times Square. Mm-hmm. If you were one of those types of people, and a lot of times high rent, purchasers have high rent tastes, they'll see, oh, well, the Times Square company must obviously be a more su- uh, successful enterprise. I'm going to use them instead.
2: It's <laughs> cute.
1: And it comes at a cost. And boy, oh boy, do I mean a cost. According to JLL's Occupancy Benchmarking Guide, again from 2020, so pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. the average cost of on-site operations was a staggering four hundred and sixty three dollars a month per square meter number one that's an average <laughs> wow okay. Two thirds of that four hundred and sixty three dollars was either rent or payments mortgage whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. now do the math in your head of the size of offices that you've worked in try to imagine that operational expense There are tens of thousands of businesses in this situation, and most of them are on long-term leases because when you sign a, a commercial lease, it's not like renting an apartment. Usually, you're talking about 10 to 15 years. Right, right. And that doesn't even account for people or companies, I should say, that actually own their campuses they have even more of an investment in that location because they put hard money down on the on the barrel head and they're like gosh darn it you people are going to use it that's right we said you people yeah so it creates a perverse incentive owners don't want to quote waste the money they're spending on rent or mortgage so they force workers back into the buildings even though every single study we see shows that working on on site means less work and more satis- or more dissatisfaction
0: Yeah, the irony here is in order to pay the rents or mortgage that they have for that property, they need to be more successful and productive as a company. But by forcing workers to go back to those buildings, they're probably going to reduce productivity and profitability. Right. It's the sunk cost fallacy. Yes, it's
1: exactly that, writ large. And in some cases, like say, for example, Comcast 58-story
0: disaster in the middle of (laughs) Philadelphia, a very large one. Right. So it, it lets like you are the leadership. You are the financial minds. You should understand the sunk cost fallacy and be able to apply it to this problem. But I think they're just letting get letting their feelings get in the way, Chris. And also you use that that, that persnickety little word
1: should. Spare. <laughs> <laughs> <It's fair. laughs> you know, and as I was writing this, I actually had a thought. How come no one has sued their insurance claiming like force majeure or something against the value of these buildings or these leases? I mean, think about it. If the building was hit by a flood or a meteor and was otherwise rendered unusable, the business would be able to recoup some money in order to move forward uh, and not have to send people to their new underwater irradiated reality.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Why not with the pandemic? The pandemic happened through the cause of, Nobody. It just happened. It irretrievably changed the way that we think about work. People don't want to work downtown. Now, all right, I, I should pause there and say not everybody. I'm sure there are some people that love to be in the office five days a week, but the averages and the majority is in my corner. Mm hmm. People want to work at their own pace, skip that soul-crushing commute, have their coffee in peace without having to talk to Daryl about his son's softball team, and move on with their lives. I don't care that he's
0: on the travel team, Daryl. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) He's 27. Move on.
1: So... Ownership management has had this problem on their hands for a while. And in general, I would say they've handled it pretty poorly. Shocking. And they continue to try to handle it more poorlier, which is a business term. <laughs> okay. So because they don't trust that their workers are doing the work that their workers are doing, a lot of workplaces have started to resort to remote
0: monitoring of remote Workers. Uh, I know where this mm-hmm. is going. I know this, like, it's fine. We'll, we'll keep going. But we, we all see where this is going. <laughs> pit of sadness? Outright fraud.
1: <laughs> we'll get there. So, leadership being unreasonably paranoid, even in the face of mountains of evidence that remote work works, insistent on tools, l- sometimes they're simple things, like... Software installed to keep track of what windows you have open, how often to you use your mouse, etc. It's hitting a lot of workers from a different way as well, though, because ownership, leadership, management doesn't respect remote workers. Remote workers are starting to feel stress and implied threats from management and entering into a behavior that is being called productivity theater. So. You want a mouse movement every nine seconds? Sure thing, Jack. I'll give you a mouse movement with nail polish. This can be done through A, sitting at the computer and moving your hand back and forth like a lunatic for eight straight hours. B, software like caffeine that just introduces a mouse jiggle. C, literal devices that you can plug into your USB port that pretend to be the mouse. And when you're not moving the mouse, the other USB device moves the mouse for you. It is not complicated to evade this stuff. But the paranoia that management thinks workers aren't doing anything is leading people to do more junk work. Mm. So they will do things like bounce around on Slack, leaving messages in a whole different little uh, list of categories – And, you know, obviously, hashtag random because we're a family. They join meetings that they know they don't need to be at just so that there is a record of them attending meetings. Remote workers will work on things later in the evening and on weekends to prove that they are engaged and send emails at all hours of the day. And really all they're doing, none of this is really helping their work. What they're doing is leaving a kind of
0: digital trail to prove that they're doing something. Right. And it's because the way that they're being measured on doing something has nothing to do with their actual level of productivity.
1: Exactly. They are starting to feel management's skepticism and are afraid of it. And they are responding by wasting their time on the illusion of working. (laughs) How is that for a vicious cycle?
0: It's not entirely unlike what I saw some people do when we worked in the office. They would come in early. They wouldn't actually get any work done early. They would come in half an hour early so that the bosses would see them in early and they'd be drinking coffee in front of their computer. Chances are they were playing Minesweeper or browsing Facebook, but they were there, they were present, and then they would choose a few evenings to stay a little bit later to show that they were burning the midnight oil to get stuff done. And they were no more productive than anybody else. Possibly less because they were sleep deprived. Right.
1: Yeah. And then you know they would they would certainly do what they could to pass that myth and message around mm-hmm. so that people would talk about it. Well, Ezekiel is always the first to come and the last to leave. Completely ignoring the fact that he's asleep in the fountain for ten hours a day.
0: <laughs> his car's here. That's what matters. That's right. Every morning I drive in, and there's his, you know, horse and buggy right next to my <laughs> Maserati. So, meanwhile, uh, a little detour off of this highway
1: of madness, leading the off-temple parade of clueless leadership drones up dumb shit bourgeois mountain is Mark Zuckerberg. Naturally. Because who else? <laughs> Zuck's latest theory is that people should use the metaverse as the workplace. Hmm. Now, on the one hand, this is obviously just another pathetic and transparent attempt by Zuck to make people think that the metaverse is going to happen. I mean, okay, it'll probably happen, but it's not going to happen on Facebook's watch. But on the other hand, and far more disturbingly, he genuinely seems to believe that people would prefer to interact digitally in the metaverse using avatars, where, quote, You can still express yourself and react, but you're not on camera. So it's kind of like a better camera off mode, which, uh, gross. So the other part of this would be the metaverse meetings and virtual office space would necessitate users to, you know, be a part of it, Mm -hmm. which would mean wearing their giant, awkward $1,500 VR helmet thing for the whole day and why not, right? So It's reasons. not like this would become a new way for management to get even more pointless and ill-conceived KPIs that leadership would interpret as performance data or
0: anything. You know, I, so let me ar- argue the converse here a little bit. And the reason to go into the office is for that natural interpersonal interaction that happens. And it's how organic conversations occur, and sometimes something good comes of it. Which is why some places are implementing like uh, four days work from home, one day in office or two days in office maximum. And those are the days where you get that kind of interaction. Something like a virtual office space could do that, but I wouldn't want it to be all day long. It would be more like you put it on for specific meetings or icebreakers or something like that. And you wear it for an hour and then you take it off and do your deep work. Right. And really, the thing that has to happen there is something that
1: is really way – well, it should have happened a long time ago. Salaried work is about the end product. Mm. The question you should ask is, did Dave do what he needed to do on Project X on time and on budget, or did he not? That's it. That's your performance metric. It should not matter if it took two hours or if it took 10 hours. If it was done in the time allotted and with the resources provided,
0: job done. Stop it. Right. It's like, you know, you and I were both engaged in a lot of project based work where it didn't matter. I mean, it mattered if you took too long to do the project. But as long as you were hitting the milestones in the project, it didn't matter how long it took you to complete those milestones as long as you were within that number. And really what the customer cared about was the project being done at the end. Done, done on time, and done right. Yeah. And as long as you hit those three things, like you said, if it took me half the amount of time that we had specced out for the project, great. Unfortunately, a lot of companies take that as a, you know, a green flag to add more work to your plate because you're being efficient. So it's actually in the employee's best interest to take exactly the amount of time that was initially allotted for that project instead of bringing it in a week early.
1: Right. And if they don't, I mean, that, that's a defensive maneuver because to the point that you're making, if they don't, then they're going to get more work dumped on their shoulders. And right. one thing that can happen Dave is not ever only going to work on one project. Project X is just what he's doing right now. Mm-hmm. He's done 24 other projects before this, right? If he finishes this one in 50% of the time that you thought it would take, that doesn't automatically mean that every single project is going to be 50% faster. You know, <sighs> Think about the projects you've done for yourself and for your company and just over time. Some of them you knock out of the park because it's just you're in the groove. It's in the exact right spot in your wheelhouse and you nail it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Other ones you have to struggle on. That's just the name of the game. And that's why these are called
0: estimates. Right. Sometimes you'll come in under and sometimes over. And that's okay. Right. And that's really the
1: thing that has to change. Work has to be about the end product it cannot just be about forcing people into a single location for eight hours
0: all day, every day. It's because we came from a culture of manufacturing and factory work where that, is, that was the way that things were measured. And productivity could be closely linked to the fact that you're working eight hours on a line or you're working 10 hours in a coal mine or something along those lines where productivity was directly correlated to the amount of time that you were forced to do a thing. That is no longer the case, right? But we never adjusted our mental model to accommodate the fact that office work is distinctly different and needs to be treated different than factory work. Well said. Thanks. I'm smart. Someone should make me leader of something. You're lucky you're the leader of this meeting, Oh, but I'm not <laughs> <laughs> looking around github is making code forks less of a forking nightmare do you get it oh my god okay i'll stop for those who are not deeply steeped in the world of git based source control and honestly even for those who are the management and maintenance of code on github is not always a simple affair while quote unquote true devs would never stoop to managing code through a gui Us mere mortals don't mind a little clicky-clicky sometimes, especially when it's something we don't do often enough to memorize the commands. One such action is bringing your fork of a project up to date with the upstream repository, an action that used to require using a git command at the command line only. GitHub was kind enough to show you the commands if you knew where to look, but beyond that, you were on your own. Now GitHub has acknowledged that this functionality along with many other things about forks was less than optimal. A phrase which here means crappy. So they've added a button to the web interface that lets you bring your out of date fork up to date with the upstream branch with a simple click. If there are no conflicts, it will simply merge the changes. If there are conflicts, you can resolve the conflicts from within the web browser. You can also choose the name for your fork when you create it instead of defaulting to the same name as the parent repository. It's these small quality of life improvements that I really appreciate from websites. As much as I love cool new features, it's actually more appreciated when you make existing features more usable. Preach. Microsoft Azure
1: misconfiguration leads to 65,000 entities losing data. Microsoft still says that the damage was, quote, greatly exaggerated. It's a song as old as time. A cloud-based data storage service is used to, well, store data for a large number of customers. Problem, that data storage service is insecurely configured leading to that data being leaked. It's a funny S3 bucket failure of the week, right? Hmm. Wrong! In this case, it was Microsoft themselves taking the L, and by taking the L, I mean letting 2.4 terabytes of data for 65,000 companies' activities over a five-year period just walk. Microsoft has hotly contested the extent of the damage, saying that the dataset was filled with duplicate information and other Weasley, it's not a big deal, bro, just relax, kind of vibes to it. It is true that the scale sounds worse than it probably is, because if you divide that 2.4 terabytes evenly into 65,000 customers, you get a data loss of something like 40 megabytes per company. So it's safe to say that there's some nuance to the actual extent of the damage. But you know what else? This time, the offending party who misconfigured the data storage service was freaking Microsoft. So I'm... Just thinking that them taking the laissez-faire approach here is really, well, let's just say it's not a good look.
0: Mm, Indeed not. Staying in the security lane, Google adds some guac to the security burrito. It, Because burritos are secure. They're wrapped up. Yeah, until you take a bite and the whole thing explodes. Well, that is security, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Last week... Google introduced a new open-source security tool called GUAC, G-U-A-C, which stands for Graph for Understanding Artifact Composition, a backronym I will allow simply because I'm a sucker for anything taco-related. The point of the tool is to create a graph database of disparate data sources to help assess the security posture of your software assets. Wow, those were a lot of words. What the hell does any of that mean? So what type of data sources are we talking about? The list includes Software Bill of Materials, the SBOM, signed attestations from builders, and... The SF... There's actually... The the acronym for that is Salsa, (laughs) S-L-S-A. I'm sorry. And vulnerability databases, each of which has several possible sources with different data formats and structures. GUAC attempts to normalize the data from each source and provide meaningful insights into risk management and compliance in the software development lifecycle. Google points to four major areas of functionality, collection, ingestion, collation, and most important, query. By building a dependency graph that a CISO or security professional can query, an organization can have a holistic view of the provenance and risk inherent in their software assets. There's a pretty famous XKCD cartoon, and it depicts a software stack built out of wooden blocks with a single tiny pillar holding up half of the stack. And that pillar belongs to a single, unpaid, open-source developer. Half the challenge is finding that one pillar in your software assets and addressing it. I don't know, perhaps by hiring that person and paying them money.
2: What? (laughs) That's
0: just silly. When you look at a modern SDLC that includes microservices, written in a handful of languages, each using open source packages written by third parties, the need for such a tool becomes fairly obvious. Alternatively, you could just write everything in assembly yourself, just like Steve Gibson, who wrote SpinWrite and Shields Up. Microsoft,
1: looking to invest in OpenAI's DALI project, integrate its functionality into You guessed it, Microsoft products and tools. Hmm. So here's one that I missed last week. Microsoft announced at Ignite that DALI will be integrated into tools like the Microsoft Designer application and as part of the Image Creator tool, which is a part of Bing and Edge. Designer sounds like a natural extension for what DALI provides, non-licensed original images. Designer will... Allow you to create these images and then use them immediately for posters, presentations, invitations, web content, etc. Designer, of course, will not be free. <laughs> A dialed-down version, the aforementioned image creator, looks way simpler, just giving you an easy way to, well, create images. Like I said, this one is based on being an edge, so in the browser. Microsoft has been an interested investor with OpenAI since 2019, having invested one-odd billion dollars into the company during seed rounds so far. This week saw the leak of another potential $1 billion investment. OpenAI as a company is valued at $20 billion, so this isn't an outright Microsoft takeover
0: yet. Yet. After WSL, Windows Subsystem for Android is the next logical extension. You may or may not know, and also may not care, that Microsoft has been working on a native way to run Android apps on Windows. Their solution, called Windows Subsystem for Android, has been released as version 1.0, implying that it is generally available. As with most 1.0 releases, this should be taken with a massive boulder of NACL. According to The Register, there are two major caveats to be noted. One, the apps available come from the Amazon App Store and not the Google Play Store, meaning that common apps you might expect, like Twitter and WhatsApp, are not available. Why Microsoft chose to support the Amazon App Store probably gets into some weird corporate synergy thing that has nothing to do with customer experience, but the point is, expect an anemic app selection at best. The second big caveat is that apps developed for touch only may not function well or at all with keyboard and mouse input. Now, that might be fine if you have a touchscreen, but it does mean that the app needs to be focused in the foreground. The question I have is, where does this leave Microsoft's own app store? Why would a developer do anything with the Windows App Store if they can just focus on Apple and Android? There's already integration with the MyPhone Companion app, the Android-based Surface Duo, and that makes the obvious admission that Microsoft apps are never going to be a thing, Gretchen. Stop trying to make apps happen. ISC
1: squared is in the middle of a seriously contentious new election and bylaws modification controversy. The ISC squared, a amazing acronym that stands for International Information System Security Certification Consortium, (sighs) holy crap, is kind of a big deal when it comes to internet security. They are described on Wikipedia as quote, the world's largest IT security organization, are probably most well-known in IT circles as the people that do the CISSP certification thingamajig, and well-known outside of of IT as, wait, who? Anyway, this past week, the ISC Squared opened up voting on a new slate of bylaws and board of directorsers, directees, direct boards of direct, Anyway, the proposed people and bylaws were met with what can only be called infuriated outrage by a lot of very well-known IT security professionals. In short, it is implied that the new bylaws will remove oversight of the board of directors, rendering all public votes effectively moot. Additionally, the ISC is only letting five members stand for five open seats on the board, which doesn't feel like a vote so much as an affirmation? Passage would eliminate the ISC Squared Ethics Committee completely and restrict anyone who isn't a board member from sitting on any committees at all going forward. Vim Rimes, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, is a famous outspoken Belgian IT security poobah, has been just one of the prominent voices leading the charge against these bylaws. Other less prominent security professionals have by the thousands stated that they would not renew their certification fees if these proposals pass. I wonder which group the ISC is more interested in listening to. (laughs) If you're a member in good standing and are only now
0: hearing about this, don't fret. The voting doesn't close until mid-November. You know, I actually saw something on Twitter about this from them and it linked to his open letter on LinkedIn and I read through it and I still had no idea what was going on because I had no context for the open letter I was like it just sounds like infighting in some organization I don't care about any of this but now that you've placed the context I'm like oh wow that's pretty bad it's not good it's not good so we'll see I'm sure I'll have more to say
1: about it say oh I don't know around the close of mid-November
0: well stay tuned for that And uh, hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. Go get some delicious burritos. Smear some security guac on it and just kind of feel gross about it because that's life. Anyway, you can find... (laughs) Me or Chris on Twitter, at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever, if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Podcasts continue to be better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now.
1: I'm a little annoyed at myself. I had totally intended on trying to look up exactly how his name is supposed to be pronounced. I mean,
0: it's eight letters: W I
1: M space R E M E S.
0: It's it's probably pronounced like John Colton. Calbervert <laughs> Malcolmstein. <laughs>